0: and we had this narrow single-engine airspeed range we could fly at. So I had to trade our altitude in that hover instantly to get to a survivable airspeed with one engine, because you can't hover this 18,000-pound helicopter at 7,000 feet with one engine. And the the alternative was to just crash the aircraft straight into the ground and try to cushion it as we do a power-assisted vertical descent. And that didn't seem like a good idea. So the, the other really scary thing was my buddy, one of our PJs, is on the hoist.
1: Tower Dewey, is to is you. rolling four left. at 5, for takeoff. Seats tied. Altura 0 eyes, We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire projector. My wrap. three five four. ahead. on. Next day.
0: I'm 16 I'm give you some of that. targeted.
1: Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening in. This is a rebroadcast because many of you weren't here three years ago when this first showed up. And I have Shiner coming back on the podcast for episode 89. We're not going to talk about his distinguished flying crosses like we do in this episode where he breaks those down. We talk a lot about the combat search and rescue and how it's changed and transformed. He's a commander now, so you'll have to check out his episode. It's available now on Patreon and it'll be coming out here in the next few days. But I thought it'd be appropriate to re-release this. So you get a little bit more backstory of who Shiner is and some of the things he has done. Quite a spicy few weeks for him back a few years ago in Afghanistan, to say the least. So I think you'll enjoy this. If you heard it, try to re-auto-engineer it just a little bit, clean it up because again, the technology has changed since I first started this and hopefully learned a thing or two. But if you are enjoying this content, again, I always ask, follow the show over on Apple podcast, Spotify, leave a rating or review. that helps the show out. And if you're interested in there I was stories and supporting the podcast, a great way to do that is over on Patreon. but again, just leaving a rating or review and sharing the show with a friend or family member helps this thing grow. and I appreciate each and every one of you who take the time to do that. So let's get into it. This was originally a two-part series. so you'll hear that in the middle. I'm just going to re-release it as one episode. Well, we broke down both of his Distinguished Flying Crosses that I mentioned earlier. So, with all being said, let's jump into the episode with Shiner. Well, awesome. Shiner, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, you have quite a journey and some interesting stories, which we're definitely going to dig into. Before you're rolling into the podcast, will you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there? Yeah, th- thanks for having me on, Rain. Uh So, Lou Nolting, go by Shiner.
0: I grew up in Colorado, kind of on the front range there, in Golden, West Denver. Knew I wanted to fly from a young age, and it was really cool at the, the inaugural DIA Air Show when they opened Denver International, and as a kid, my dad took me there, and I got a ride in the original T-6, and they had to stack two parachutes, and the pilot had to like say, yeah, one pilot refused, and the other one's like, yeah, we'll just stack parachutes for him. And we did barrel roll and it was pretty great. And I was 10, and that just always stuck in my mind. And so I did some research and I applied to all five service academies, including Merchant Marine nice. and uh, a bunch of rotzies, right? And got into Merchant Marine and accepted that appointment. And then at the last second, got a letter from Air Force Academy saying,
1: hey, you know, drive an hour south from Golden and join our class. So I did that. Yeah. That's awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah. Quite a glove save from being around floating around the ocean for (laughs) nine months. I know. I know. Well, supposedly they have,
0: uh, Navy pilot slots or coast guard that they never fully fill or that they have opportunities. So that was kind of my angle there, but I'm pretty seasick. So it would have been
1: bad. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, it's cool to hear that. You know, I get a mix of people. I think you and I kind of similar in that sense, like I got an aviation hook pretty early, really early on. And then my whole focus was like, I want to go be an Air Force pilot. But there are a lot of people who are just kind of out there floating around. They don't necessarily know they want to go out there and fly. But sounds like you're the first case where you knew in high school, I assume you're, everything was kind of geared towards getting into a service academy and getting a pilot slot, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I was just fortunate that I had that focus and the knowledge and the support to kind of piece that together. I got my private in high school. so that was pretty cool. I was I got my private pilot right as I kind of got my driver's license. so maybe a little after. but we I grew up rock climbing and ice climbing. We'd go scout lines in the foothills there and
1: figure out where we wanted to climb with the plane. It was super cool. That's awesome, man. yeah, I actually I got my pilot's license in high school as well, and I think that's pretty unique, but it's one of those things that it's not a requirement. Do have a pilot or yeah, your pilot's license going into the Air Force Academy or ROTC in order to get a pilot slot? But it's definitely one of those things that I think helps. And probably flying around in Colorado, that's some airmanship that you developed at a pretty young age that you can translate, I imagine, into flying H 60s which is what you do now, right? Right. And
0: I think that mountain flying, that lower altitude using the winds kind of hooked me and uh, pulled me in towards the low-level, helo, tactical mindset. So I kind of knew that existed going into the academy and they'll come and land at the Torazzo, kind of the, the center square there at USafa, and we'll get to talk to those dudes. So I was able to see them as a cadet and be exposed to that.
1: What was the hook that made you go like pursue a career flying HH-60s and doing combat search and rescue? So at UPT, I...
0: So I'd flown private pilot. I'd never been airsick at all. And then in the T6 from like day one, I was super sick and I worked super hard to, to cope with it, but I never fully kicked it. And like half my mental energy was devoted to just uh, keeping my body calm, basically, as far as air sickness went. And I, I had this hunch that I could do. Kind of a hard, fun, adventurous, tactical job with with helicopters, and maybe not be super sick. And I was right, and I'm super
1: lucky that that opportunity existed. Yeah did you know Did you know anything about CSAR or anything like that going through pilot training, or did you have any mentors that guided you? That well, when I was a cadet, uh, Anaconda, so I was the first
0: 9/11 post 9/11 class at USAFA. So 9/11 had just happened. Anaconda just happened. And then the Iraq War, Iraq War kicked off in 03. Uh, Colonel Kim Campbell, I think captain at the time, flew her A 10 back and came and talked to us as cadets. And that was pretty cool. And she was a uh I'm not sure if she was Sandy called at that time, but she was an A10 pilot and talked about the rescue mission. And then we had some of the McKay trophy winners from earlier in that war, MH-53 guys from the 20th SOS at Herbie come out and talk to us and I remember as a cadet in Mitchell Hall they were hearing them talk at the staff tower and I was just stoked I thought it was super wild what they were doing and them interacting with the environment with brownouts and the mountains and problem solving and just like getting people out by the skin of their teeth was pretty cool I just left Usafa as an AOC and that was wild to go back and develop the the youngsters there and our future leaders. But I would tell them as far as CSAR goes, it's like being on a sports team for your whole life, basically. From pararescue to the pilots to the backenders to our special mission aviators who are our flight engineer gunners. But we, the idea is, like you said, we go to the worst place on Earth for the next 15 minutes. And it's probably a setup to try to kill us also. And that's a pretty wild job Everybody else is leaving that place and we're trying to get there as fast as we can and we don't know much about it. And we just update our info as we approach it. And from my combat experiences, I think the goal is to have enough game plans and plays in your playbook. You can react and engage and try to get that survivor. And then the goal really is to have the willpower to to fight and then the ability to survive your mistakes so that you get another chance. So you just make a bunch of mistakes and survive them because <laughs> you are you have enough talent and enough luck and skill and training
1: and then you're still alive and you get another chance and you finally pull it off. Well, it's like we can train and we can train and we can train, but the enemy always gets a vote. Right. The plan always provides first contact with the enemy. Tremendous amount of respect for, for guys flying helos. You're flying down low in the dirt and like you said, you're going to where, especially doing combat search rescue, you're going where everyone else is trying to leave and you're this hovering target, which we're going to talk about <laughs> some of your stories here in a little bit, which to me are just like amazing. With that, what does a like normal deployment look like for a rescue pilot? Sure. So I
0: think it depends a lot as everything does, right, on like where you're going and what the current operations are. Back in the surge in Afghanistan, we would have... A one to two dwell or a one-to-one dwell. So you would be deployed four months and you'd be back maybe eight months and then you go back four months. The army was doing a year and a half. And we would see the same army troopers on the same deployment after we'd been back home for almost a year and they're still there. So that would humble us when we think we'd have it hard basically. But we deploy, we at that time we'd go to Bagram. And then we would pre-position and support different Army missions. And what we were doing there was flying CASAVAC, casualty evacuation. But we were always holding CSAR, Combat Search and Rescue Alert. So like Rain, if you you had a sick jet and you had to get out, we were always on call to drop even a CASAVAC mission and press straight to go get you in that situation. But flying the CASAVAC, we were armed. We had typically dual 50-cals in a formation, so a two-ship. And we would have apache rescort or kiowa rescort and we would be able to go into assume a lot of risk go into hot lz's troops in contact to pull folks out of really bad situations that often the dust off birds couldn't survive that low energy state in the hover what since they were unarmed the army dust off blackhawks that's somebody i know so dust offs those are unarmed Yes, so the dust-off birds traditionally have the Red Cross on the nose and super brave aircrew that just throw a band into the wind and go in to get dudes unarmed following, you know, full concepts, Geneva Convention, the medical
1: evacuation bird. I did not know that because, to me, that's phenomenal. I know... It's super awesome. Yeah, there's no... It's super brave. Yeah, there's no insurgents that's playing by the Geneva Convention. Nope these guys and gals going out there to do that, like hats off. I, I learned something that's phenomenal. Cause <laughs> mean, you know, my experience again, is that one year that I spent with the rescue squadron, it, all the training sorties were go fight your way in, fight your way back out. You were armed. Granted, you're still a helicopter, but you had the ability to return fire. And usually you had a tens or something like that that were providing escort. Right. What, uh, man. So With that being said, were you guys integrated with the Army? I would imagine this is kind of like if you're sitting alert, they have Apaches that are sitting alert that you guys are going to launch as a formation and they're going to provide cover for you if you're going somewhere. Occasionally, but we were, Air Force Rescue is a pretty cool thing because
0: it's this cohesive team effort that's pretty organic. So we have just the triad, we have the rescue tanker, the HC-130, then we have the PJ's pair rescue, and then we have the Jolly Erker, special mission aviators and pilots. And so we can do our mission self-supporting. And then Afghanistan, in my experience at least, was pretty much a pickup game if we were a formation. We would ask for any attack weapons teams to just join us as we went in for the casualty evacuation pickups so invariably there'd be two apaches or an apache and a kiowa as a dual gun team and we would kind of grab them as we went and then we would make an effort pre-deployed pre-positioned um with the attack weapons pilots to talk to them about their tactics and our terminology so that we could integrate a little smoother than just having never met each other and shown up but we typically wouldn't launch together we would
1: uh, pick them up as we roll into the terminal area. I know it depends. Again, we're gonna we're gonna dive into the two of your sorties here, but on average, were you guys pretty busy or was it just flying or sitting alert or doing Kazovac? Right. So right now, what deployments look like is we sit alert
0: for CSAR and we'll we can sit ground alert, airborne alert, push forward um, as required for some of the stories you guys have been talking about on the podcast recently. Uh, but back then uh, we were getting a lot of missions and the guys in the South in Kandahar and then in the West in Bastion, they were getting like 12 missions a day, IED blast troops in contact. And there's, there's some good podcasts on that stuff too, but they would just, you know, go into the zone with repeated uh, under fire actions, pull dudes out bring them to the medical center and come right back out and super gruesome stuff. Like people trapped in minefields, hovering off kind of the carnage from that is the only hover references they have. And they can't descend below the hoist height. Like they're up at 200 feet, maybe 150 feet because if they go lower, there's a risk they set off the IEDs with the helicopter. So you've got a PJ on the hoist, putting one foot down on the ground, like bear hugging somebody and bringing them up. Um, and so they were super busy. And then up in Bagram, my experience was that we would have very intense missions that would be usually off of an army operation. But we'd had less constant missions as far as like every day. But when the army decided to fight force on force, we would be first up because we were armed for that casualty evacuation. And we would just get attack weapons to cover us and our second aircraft. And
1: we go in and pull these, these folks out. And it's wild. And I know like for me, it was always, I mean, I think for every aviator, knowing that you guys are out there, if you, if I'm going to have a really bad day, uh, there's going to be brothers in arms that are going to come pick you up, like is a huge, huge factor of being able to go push forward. I'm just trying to think like. It's wild. My last deployment, it was so, it was Operation Hand Resolve, and that was such a new kickoff that we were flying outside of the ranges where, like, you guys would be able to reach us very quickly, and we actually had a Jordanian go down well inside Syria, and I think that changed a lot of, like, how the dynamics of places went, but that requires you guys to forward deploy to, I would say, less than your normal Air Force locations, right? Right. So, we are forward of the normal Air Force locations,
0: and... Post the the tragedy with the Jordanian pilot, we, Air Force Rescue, CSAR, re-entered the, uh, we, we were there, but we got a lot closer following that. Makes a big difference. Yeah, for sure. And then we're able to kind of uh, support the intensity of the strikes
1: and be able to react quicker when those are going on, when, when we integrate. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'm going to start digging into a sortie here. So this is March 29, 2011, and you're awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. March 29, 2011, uh, you were alerted to an urgent evacuation request for soldiers that were critically wounded by enemy fire. After coordinating uh, helicopter attack helicopters to mitigate the threat in the landing zone and receiving high risk mission approval from the Combined Air Operations Center director, there's occasionally some red tape, but that requires I mean a, a few phone calls or satcom i would imagine to get that approval right that's right yeah that's a satcom
0: call usually from our enlisted gunner who is passing flight leads words because flight leads busy integrating with attack weapons and so they're passing words to the chaos to get that approval or to our operations center locally to then get that approval
1: yeah and the approval there too it's acceptable level of risk right that he's determining and owning like is it worth sending this helicopter and these, this crew into harm's way with a chance of not coming back? That's
0: right. And with the consideration, this is a force-on-force army combat operation, but their primary mission is are. So am I willing them to accept high risk, possibly get damaged, shot down, doing that, and
1: then not be able to support you guys in the fast jets? You always want to help out. But if you get killed or if you get damaged and have to, and you go down now, it's we're rescuing four more people in addition to the four people that needed rescuing in the first place.
0: Right. Like CSAR is unique in that all need return. Whereas if you're on a strike mission and you hit your target, if it's a serious enough target, you know, some dudes might not come back and it's a mission success, but usually with a, the considerations, the the full spectrum considerations for CSR. You need everybody back, or you just exponentially make the problem
1: worse. In the CSR world, Hilo world, do you guys use acceptable level of risk, or do you have another? I'm same. It's same concept, basically. Hey, we're willing to accept a loss here for mission success, or no losses.
0: That's right, and and that would depend on what that operation is, right? And I think. Afghanistan was very intense combat, but it was typically small arms fire up to Dishka, so 50 caliber, and RPG. And if you had a, a sick jet in the zone there, you could go to a FOB. There were FOBs for an operating basis with fuel and ammo within 20 minutes of almost anywhere we would be. So we had a very survivable, permissive ability to escape that terminal area whereas if we're talking about uh syria area or something uh fuller spectrum you if you have a sick aircraft you got to get out of there quick because you can't beat it up in the zone and trade fire like you can if if you can just go precautionary land your bird 10 minutes later and then get to the spare aircraft and then continue the mission because you have such a logistical base in afghanistan like we did
1: a well-established completely different fight than from what's going on next door what was going on right next door. So you skillfully flew an approach through a channelized terrain and mountainous terrain with only feet between the rotor system and the rock face. Captain Nolan kept a solid one hundred and twenty foot hover while preparing for a hoist extraction. So for me, all that sounds terrible, spinning blades of death, <laughs> hit it from your head right next to a rock wall. I would imagine the higher you are, the tougher it is for the hover and dropping it. Is that true or not? That's true.
0: There's more power required. So aerodynamically, it costs more to keep that helicopter stable at that height. There's no ground effect. Uh, And you're trying to hit this basically loose cable, like a, a super long climbing rope and get it possibly onto a roof or onto a boulder in the mountains and grab a dude who's wounded or trapped down there and pull him out. So you have to be pretty accurate with it. So At that point, the pilots, we have hover cues that we can use when we're that high and we don't have good outside references or it's really dark over the water. And we have acceleration velocity cues we can center on themselves and hover heads in on the FLIR image, kind of like a HUD tape for you guys, but a heads down display for us. And then the FE, the flight engineer, is just calling us right to back one. And they're basically flying the aircraft with their voice and they're looking at 90 degrees to our orientation. So their right is forward to them, but they have to say right for us. And it's super crew intensive, calm voices matter a lot. Pilot not flying, helping out the the pilot who's flying and everybody's voice, just keeping the next one calmer and getting the job
1: done with a lot of precision with that hover work. So there, a lot happens between the time I just said, hey, you got alerted to the fact that you're 120 feet over the area and getting ready to do a hoist extraction. What is the process from getting alerted? Is it just, hey, here's the grids and go, and then a JTAC frequency, or are you talking to c C2? How, does it, how do you get to that spot where you're hovering? So we had pre-positioned to
0: a fob called Joyce near Asadabad, and we were literally one mountain bridge from this battle, and we could just hear it as it intensified. And then when the Army Howitzer, the 105, started going off with its GPS guided uh, 105, we knew like our missions were coming basically. And this was this operation was Strong Eagle Two, and the 82nd Airborne infilled 600 troopers with Chinook lifts into a mountain valley, and they patrolled both sides down and into a Taliban stronghold and fought their way through it. And we, I think we had like 12 missions in the first day. Picking up dudes with broken ankles, gunshot wounds, and making sure that those troops on the ground could continue to maneuver and not just stay in place and support the wounded soldier. And so those were our night missions. I was the co-pilot on Chalk 2, and this is my second deployment, and we had a, a team where I was with a pilot. Um, good friend who had flown Huey's his first assignment and then had switched to PayPox, so he's an experienced aviator and this was his first deployment as an uh, aircraft commander or a mission pilot. And I was trying to just support him and help him with whatever he needed and as we're going into the zone he, he asked, hey, do you want to fly this approach? And it was the first approach I was going to fly for our team basically in the zone. I was like, sure, yeah, I'll take it. I'm feeling good. And as we roll in, we had waited to get Apaches, and they were rearming. I think it was a Kiowa also. And so they'd rearmed, and we'd waited in with these Cat Alphas, these super wounded uh, 82nd Airborne Troopers to roll in to support them. And as we roll in, there's a J-PAC on the Freak, and as we roll into the valley, flight lead, all of his flares jettison off the aircraft, and it was some electrical glitch. And they just auto jettison, and the JSTAC starts saying, "Hey, Lee just had a missile shot shot down or something," and, uh, and we're just like in track two, like uh, almost laughing, like what is happening? <laughs> and did you hit the jettison switch? And they're like, "No, we didn't." And that was a go/no go for us for manpad threats. And they're like, "Well, these dudes need us, so we're gonna just press anyways, and we'll stay in the overhead." Uh, we're going to press in. And so, you know, I don't, I, for some reason I was tracked to co-pilot. So I had, if you have SA, you could have a lot of SA because you're making the least amount of decisions. And I was talking to the ground team and I think their call sign was Wolverine. And I remember asking Wolverine, say, uh, location last known threat. And they said, accurate cyber fire 10 minutes ago. But I was like, oh, cool. Okay. That's high fidelity. And we just press in, right? Um, And as we roll in, we ask them to pop their smoke. We're on secure radios, so the Taliban probably can't hear us. Ask them to pop four different locations, pop smoke. That's how intense this battle was. Those were all U.S. soldiers, teams need an evacuation. And we went to the closest smoke is a big Mountain rock face, big granite rock face, kind of that looks like Eagles Peak above the Air Force Academy. And they'd been, this squad had been engaged kind of in this little ravine, but it had a huge, like 1,500 foot slope. That as I teardropped in, I briefed my escape route, which we always train to do. And sometimes you're, if you're complacent, you won't brief it. But I did. And I said, Hey, I'm going to teardrop in. And I'll, I'll line up into the wind. I'll hover off this rock face and we'll do our hoist and get this dude out of here. And escapes will be down and left. We have a little chin bubble by your foot. You can look down. And so as I teardrop in, set up this hoist, our PJ gets on the hoist. And the flight engineer now is half manning his weapon. I think he probably put another PJ on the 50 cal and that he's running the hoist. And right as we get stable, PJ gets his feet on the side of the aircraft, the the ambush that had engaged the soldiers engaged us. And we'd shot our weapons a bunch, but we'd never been shot at in our aircraft. But there was no mistaking what it was. It was basically, I don't know how many rounds went off. It was probably a PKM, so a 7.62 belt-fed machine gun. It engaged us and it hit us five times just on the first burst and hit retreating edge of the blade. But the the Blackhawk is this, this war machine designed from lessons learned in Vietnam, and it's got a big titanium spar down the blade. So that bullet just hit the spar and went straight up on the blade, didn't hurt anything. Um, one of the bullets, though, hit the right engine deck, the digital electronic control, and broke the circuit breaker in half, or uh, the uh, circuit board, and blew the wire cable off it. So the computer brain of our jet engine just got exploded and it failed to the low side oh that's convenient super convenient could have failed to the high side and and helped us hover (laughs) with a lot of power but it failed to the low side and so we got hit i look straight in and i see the all these vertical chiclets so our aircraft is vertically stacked for our instruments little lights uh the rotor should have been in the green it was in the red. It was even past the 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 yellow chicks chicklets. And uh, you know, my immediate reaction was to try to enter an auto rotation from a hover and try to get to our lift over drag max, our bucket speed. And we had this narrow single engine airspeed range we could fly at. So I had to trade our altitude in that hover instantly to get to a survivable airspeed with one engine. Cause you can't hover this 18,000 pound helicopter at 7,000 feet with one engine. And the, the alternative was to just crash the aircraft straight into the ground and try to cushion it as we do a power assisted vertical descent. And that didn't seem like a good idea. So the, the other really scary thing was my buddy, one of our PJs is on the hoist. This so, scary, I was going to ask is like, you got to what, what, attach the hoist with his foot on the ground, right? Yeah, no, with his foot on the helicopter floor, ready to go down. But it's unclear to me how far the hoist he's down. And so it's the philosophy 101 boxcar dilemma. And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to save six dudes and maybe sacrifice one. And it's super tragic if this happens. But man, I really hope he gets in the aircraft. And so this uh, one of my first instructors, Rocky, had shown me how to do a 180 auto in the 60, which was a lot different than our pilot training Huey. You got to just dump the nose and basically do an aileron roll and pull it around with collective to maneuver it for that type of maneuver. So from that hover, I pointed it basically straight at the ground, did it 30 degrees nose low at least, did an aileron roll in effect, even though it's rotary wing, right? But that's kind of what it would feel like. And then dump the collective as I did that. And as we just plummeted towards the ground to just trade that potential energy into kinetic. I was just getting ready to crash it into the rocks and flare it to make it as survivable as possible. But then I saw the rotor was actually not stalled. And we were flying at about 89, 90% NR. The generators kick off at 88 and all your anti-ice fails open and robs you of all your power. And and probably all your uh, electronic displays too. Yeah, things should want really, to default to the high side or like, you know, like, yeah, it's not helping me right now. Right, exactly. And so I, I roll out of this and I had this uh, very vivid, like out of body experience where I was just watching myself in my hand fly the rotor with the collective. And I flashed back to our wedding and all my friends flying pavehocks. And I was just like, you lucky guys, like, how is this happening to me? And I just couldn't believe it and uh and then i was like hey we are gonna crash but i think i'm gonna yeah i was thinking about me and the crew i think some of us are gonna survive this and then i was really worried my rifle would be bent where it was stowed next to me in the armor wing and i wouldn't be able to defend the helicopter and then we just kept flying and we we come around the corner and the pilot the the my buddy uh mission pilot takes the controls and I was lining up to roll us into a poppy field and basically crash land us because my SA was just zero. And he takes the controls. And I was like, at first, a little like, hey, let me finish this, man. But then he took him and said, hey, we're still flying. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're still flying. And he, I said, what happened? And he says, our engine shot out. And I, that, that was like horrifying to hear that, even though it already happened and we'd survived it. And then I asked, hey, is, hey, is Yuri still alive? Is our PJ still there? And they're like, yeah, dude, he jumped in right as it happened. And for our whole crew, that's just incredible luck. And it was pretty amazing to get the crew out of that situation all in one piece. And so then we had what you call, right, like a non dash one EP. Like there's nothing that describes the indications we were seeing, you know, but we had battle damage, you know, fire fought, and frozen battle damage, shut that engine down. And then. Really good um, flight leadership from my mission pilot now it says, Hey, let's take it to the runway at Jalalabad and we'll roll this on. And uh, like an airplane, kind of like the uh, Chinook pilot
1: was talking about from the forest fires. Helicopters are another world to me, but like a roll on landing. And then it makes sense if you're underpowered, you obviously don't like you're going to require more power to hover and sit at right roll-on landing makes se- it roll-on landings make sense to me but you <laughs> know I, I, I look <laughs> out for you that too
0: yeah yeah so we we can do a roll-on landing it's a tail dragger in the Blackhawk or the PayPal, and then you can arrow break it super effectively um but I in my mind my essay was still rebuilding and I was like well you know we can kind of like do a single-engine approach to a spot into a fob or roll it on onto a road in front of the fob and brave the landmines and try to get picked up by a team and then he's like we'll just take
1: it to a runway
0: i was like oh that's a way better idea
1: <laughs> i like this but it's fun i mean you get ra- obviously you're wrapped up in the moment and having a crew is super helpful right because you're gonna be hopefully different bits of information someone else is building their essay while yours is dumped singularly focused on just initial survival of this this event so it's kind of nice to have two people in there assuming the person's on an essay drain
0: right no it was it saved our lives we had two pilots two special mission aviators and then two or three PJs. And I remember the PJs telling me, they said, the only call we got out of the aircraft too was contact, contact, contact from one of the PJs. Flight lead heard us and was like, why are they flying down the valley? Because it's so hard daytime to see point of origin. Uh, you have to literally be staring as it as they shoot at you or you can't catch it. And so they bravely followed us expecting to maybe flame out and have to auto rotate coming into Jalal That'd be our chase ship. And we tried to get some Apaches to follow us, but they were busy just slaying people up in the mountain there. And we pretty focused on that. And so we self-supported our own escape. And then we flew down the Konar river at, at about, you know, 75 feet talking through how we do a low altitude auto. If we took a kite or more battle damage or birds into the good engine, trying to like land on a sandbar or the beach or something and defend ourselves till an MRAP could get to us. But we got to Jalalabad there. But back to the PJs, they said, hey, when we first got hit, we're pretty sure we were going to die. Then we were pretty sure we were going to live. Then flying down the river, when you started talking about us like swimming out of the helicopter, if we had to auto it, we were pretty sure we were going to die again.
1: <laughs> it's a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions. Yes. Yeah. Dude, I can't. I can't imagine. I imagine daytime, or even I don't. I don't know what the insurgents were doing at that time. If they were using tracers or not, but like you said, daytime finding a point of origin where that stuff's coming from, you're basically looking for dust kicking up. Which in the mountains, everything is tan and green. Probably a pretty low probability that you're actually going to see where that point of origin came from. It's even surprisingly low probability.
0: Even if you know all that, you think, "Hey, I'm in a helicopter in the overhead." I'm looking at my dude, the your chalk two or your flight lead, I know I can see if they get engaged. But you really can't. Like you can, and if you're lucky and you just are looking right at that spot as it happens. But like you said, uh I can't recall if there were tracers that day, but it's it's just phenomenally difficult, even at a hundred feet, to spot that, let alone in a fast jet spotting that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there's no way you would unless you have tracer rounds, and obviously there's gonna be bigger stuff shooting at faster jets, but nighttime. With the targeting pod, best case scenario, you're going to see a hotspot, maybe looking out with like MVGs, day if they're shooting tracers or something like that, you'd be able to pick it up, but nothing of use, especially in that terrain with, you know, steep mountains and things like that. And the fast jet, you're not going to have total view the entire time as you're up there in the orbit. So, right. <laughs> completely, completely different world. And to me, it's phenomenal uh, what you guys do because you're you're risking it going in there, definitely hanging it out and in the hover and just a sitting target. And I can imagine every insurgent in the world would love it nothing more than to shoot down a U.S. helicopter or any helicopter for that matter.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's very much their goal in those situations is a SAR trap or some sort of ambush for the rescue vehicle
1: when we get there. You mentioned that you, you guys are about 7,000 feet yeah. up in the mountains. So helicopter-wise... That's probably getting pretty close to max performing it, depending on your fuel weight, how many bodies you got in there, right? I know I know it can go higher, but can you talk me through some of the challenges of flying around at that altitude and that terrain? Right. So flying around that terrain, you want to use the winds
0: to your advantage, right? So on the updrafts there, watch out for demarcation lines where you get a lot of turbulence coming off the ridges. But with our power calcs, we're running on our CDU, And with our flight engineer, how much it'll take to hover. And with fuel, as close as it was, we would fuel dump to about 20 minutes of usable gas every pickup in that situation. So we would just fly max fuel. And then once we knew what the pickup was like, we would dump to 20 minutes of gas and commit to the zone and try to get those dudes out. And so you were like both committed threat wise to getting them out and injury wise for them. And then you only had like 10 minutes of gas with a bingo factored in to get to your base to refuel. So we were being pretty precise with the fuel dumps and occasionally could get a rescue tanker or a AFSOC tanker to give us some gas. But at those altitudes, that's hard to get them off their mission set unless they're just supporting us for a CSAR
1: type mission. a completely different world than what I'm used to and it's like phenomenal just to hear that story. I would like to shift gears to another Distinguished Flying Cross that you received which was just what about a month later? That's right, yeah. So, yeah. About 25 days later or whatever. Part 2 for episode number 17 is available to download right now. And to sum it up, Shiner is a bullet magnet. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, part two of episode number 17. So, so in
0: my mind, it goes from, man, we're so lucky to see this person snatch him just with the hoist, get out of here, or with an air land. But, but now it's going to be doubly complicated and we're going to commit our ground forces to the battle. And
1: it takes a serious turn in that case for us. Again, that's Shiner talking about his second sortie in this episode, which was a little sporty to say the least. So with that being said, let's get into part two of episode number 17 with Shiner. That's right. Yeah. So
0: yeah, about 25 days later or whatever.
1: Yeah. So I have it here. Yeah. April 23rd, 2011. This one, you're tasked to rescue two army pilots down in enemy controlled territory, 25 miles east of Bagram. You navigated your aircraft around the enemy position to the crash site and began recovery operations. And during the initial insertion, you received enemy fire, striking the cabin and injuring one of your flight engineers. So can you kick off the day where you sitting alert or were you guys tasked with a mission that day?
0: Yeah. So we were sitting
1: alert. I was asleep on the crew couch,
0: kind of like sleeping on my arm that fell asleep. And somebody runs in, it's dark and they're like, Hey, fallen angel which is the the code, right, for uh, downed aircraft. And usually we're doing Gazibak. We're always on CSAR alert, but we, you know, it's such a rare event that it's usually a false positive, right? And so I'm like, hey, Fallen Angel, like, are you sure? And I, they're like, yeah, let's get to the aircraft. So he gets the aircraft, and it was kind of cool. Well, I wouldn't say it's cool, but when that aircraft went down, their wingman called for Pedro just was our call sign. And they just called for Air Force Rescue straight away. And so when the chaos called our DO, they said, hey, a Pedro's down. And he runs outside and he looks at all three of our aircraft and he runs back and he's like, nope, we're all here. We're good. <laughs> what? What, uh, is somebody else down? And they're like, oh yeah, no, looks like a, a RV helicopter's gone down and they're asking for Pedro. And so we launch and we, we have an initial approximate location. And it's about you know, 25, 30 minutes from Bagram. It was in the French controlled AO and pretty rugged terrain up there, RCE, the, the mountainous area of Afghanistan. And so we launch and we're chalked to same crew as the month before, test fire weapons, all four of them work, which is great. We enter, we've got Strike Eagles overhead and we've got another Army Kiowa overhead. And I think at this time in Apache is well. And the aircraft that went down was a OH-58 Delta Army Kiowa. So a very lightweight army attack helicopter. And they were flying a familiarization flight of the local area. So they were a mixed crew. And they took a one in a thousand shot off a, off a ridge. And the pilots flew it well enough to save the co-pilot's life as they crashed. Pilots killed in the crash. And so the co-egresses... Can't get the pilot out and then decides to basically defend the aircraft with his M4. But he's got a broken back and a fractured jaw. And he climbs 500 vertical feet and then does an overwatch of the, the downed aircraft with his weapon. And is getting on the radio. And as we turn the corner, basically, NBGs, we see his strobe going off in here. The Apache talking to us. See him lazing him. And, I mean, to me, at that point in time, it's just like a movie. I was like, this is amazing. We're so lucky we see the survivor. We're going to commit right away to get him out. Because the fear is, you know, you can't talk to the survivor. You can't find him. and Or you see him, and then you can't see him. But in this case, we see him. Ira Strobe, lead goes in and realizes at this point that that survivor is separated from the aircraft and you'd never want to split your forces. Typically in this case, our ground team of, of pair rescue, but we did not think it was like vertically separated by such rugged terrain. And so they stayed in the zone with the co-pilot and we
1: then were, were spun in as chalk two to the crash site. There's obviously confusion that's going on and there's some things you're overcoming, just like there's, survivors up the hill and the crash sites 500 meters away right how did you guys navigate and like narrow that down is it purely like you're seeing his strobe and like how do you know that's him versus like an enemy strobe yeah so that's a great question and this
0: is if you have an on-scene commander basically a wingman who can keep chain of custody visually that's basically what happened here And that apache uh secure radios with us was just certain that was the co-pilot or one of the pilots, right? And uh, we were integrated with that Apache at that point. So we just used that person as the on-scene commander, chain of custody since the crash. And we're very confident that that was not a spoofer or a a star trap to get that pilot with the IR strobe out. So we're very confident that that was that person. And then as they're trying to hoist him up, you start hearing, hey, trapped in the wreckage, trapped in the wreckage. And we shift. Oh, got it. Okay. So it's gonna be have, probably have to put in both our pararescue teams. That we have some power tools that they can use to get dudes out of uh, armor or an aircraft. And so we're we're kind of expecting. So so in my mind, it goes from man, we're so lucky to see this person snatch them just with the hoist, get out of here, or with an air land. But but now it's gonna be. Doubly complicated, and we're going to commit our ground forces
1: to the battle, and it takes a serious turn in that case for us. So, for you guys, you're putting down by the crash site right then and dropping the PJs off so they can work. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. So at this point in time, flight
0: lead infilled their combat rescue officer and their two pararescuemen, the hoist to the co-pilot, and directed us to spin to the zone to the crash site. And then our pararescue is going to overland, move, and link up. And so at that point in time, it's just getting to be dawn, but it's still dark. And for some reason, I look down and I see the rotor system in the crash Kiowa. And I'm the only crew member that sees it. And so I take the controls, spin into the zone there, and it's super rugged terrain with a hill to one side. The hoist is on the outside of the terrain, so we have to be even higher for that angle to work. And we do like a 150-foot hoist to get our two PJs into the zone there. And right as we infill our two PJs, we took very effective sniper fire and went straight through the floor and through our flight engineer's leg. And he just calls FE hit as we react to that fire and lay some suppressing fire down from the other side and go around and at that point i'm taking off into the rising sun with pnbgs on so four goggled nbgs staring into the sun with the crew member wounded i'm blind on flight lead and somebody else wires and there's these big gondola cables strung across the valley that they would uh transfer stuff across this pretty rugged river And I couldn't even see him. And I just was telling lead, hey, I'm blind. I don't want to hit you. We took fire. Crew members wounded. Trying not to hit these wires. And I'm staring at the sun on night vision goggles that I'm trying to slap off my helmet. So I I can uh, uh, see, basically. Uh, Flight lead says, hey, we're saddled off you. We're not going to hit you. Just keep flying. And we'd had a good friend, a pilot wounded, who had been flown back. And there were some good lessons learned from that. And we had talked about if a crew member was wounded, kind of what to do if the mission permitted. And this is, you know, per that space and time in Afghanistan conditions and all that support assets. But my friend kind of had this joke. He's like, well, if it's CSAR, if you can take out the the combat in the search and just do the rescue and they're a crew member, it's pretty simple. You just fly them straight to the hospital. Right. And so that's where we were at. and uh me me and Phil, my uh the pilot, we agreed, hey, yeah, we're gonna fly him straight to the hospital. So we go straight to Bogroom. they send around an F fifteen and a C seventeen and let us land straight to the medical station. And the only time uh after fifty drop offs there, maybe a hundred, I don't know, uh that the we weren't met by medical staff. So plus <laughs> Classic. Me and the PJ, or sorry, me, our PJs are on the ground, right? So our gunner is treating our flight engineer. Our flight engineer probably weighs 300 pounds with his gear. So my gunner and I pick him up and we have to run him 50 to hundred meters up into the ER. And a Marine Prowler pilot wakes up out of his tent and runs over to help us in his underwear. So three of us are carrying Jim up, trying not to hurt him. Super brave dude. And he's, he's gotten through it. And we get to this padlock at the gate at the hospital. And I'm like, I don't know the code. The PJs know the code. I don't know the code. And I look at my M9 on my desk and I'm like, well, I could try to shoot the lock open. <laughs> and I'm like, that's probably a terrible idea. Right as nurses show up um and open the gate for us. So thank God I didn't have to solve that problem. <laughs> Send the base into lockdown. Yeah, exactly. With a maniac pilot trying to <laughs> charge the hospital. Uh so then we drop our flight engineer off the hospital. I run back. I'm strapping in, and my our gunner's still in the the hospital. I'm like, oh no! And we're we're covered in blood from from our flight engineer. So I run back in, and they're trying to cut his vest and flight suit off. And I run in, and it's an operating room um, with a army surgeon, and she's trying to cut his vest off. And I'm like, uh, hey, Konzo, are you wounded? And he says, no. I'm like, okay, come with me then. It's time to go. And and I'm yelling, and the surgeon, she's a cardinal, looks at me and she's like, do not raise your voice in my operating room. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And I'm sorry, ma'am. And I grab my gunner and we run back to the helicopter. And they worked hard to save our, our MC's life. And then we had fantastic leadership this whole mission. And they say, hey, Fly with your Flight Engineer, do a battle damage check, and then come pick up a spare and get back to the fight. So I grabbed this Chinook maintenance crew as the, the rest of our crew is hot gassing. And I grabbed these dudes and I'm like, hey, come with me and count the bullet holes in my aircraft and tell me how many you get. Count them independently and let's see if we get the same number. And so um, there had been blood sprayed on the tail through one of the holes in the floor. It was super gruesome, bunch of bullet holes. We... We compare them, I thank them for their help. We go get our senior enlisted member who hops on board, having been asleep like 30 minutes before, gets into a pretty gruesome crew position. And before he's even strapped in, we just vertical takeoff straight back to the fight. And we enter this turning rejoin with lead and I'm like rotor to rotor, pulling too much torque and he's screaming at me to torque down. And I can't or I'll collide. And I rushed into this rejoin and I, I, I finally mellow it out and, and get saddled this truck too. And he's just like, you guys need to calm down and tell me what's happening. And for the rest of that flight, he was this voice of reason that just like kept us caged. Yeah. And so we, we told him what was happening. Um, in the meantime, flight lead had gotten out the, the co-pilot and his three guardians and our two PJs were still trapped, taking fire at the wreckage. Um, so they decide to cover us on one attempt at a hoist exfil Exville for our two PJs and the pilot at the crash site. So we go in, stable hover in that same uh, firing position, enemy firing position, probably single shot, maybe multiple shots, but straight through our new flight engineer's helmet, Dang. straight through Scuba's helmet hit the right side of his helmet, conformed around the foam, and then went out the left side. And, you know, Dude. weight, like, gets thrown basically between the pilots, returns fire with one hand with his 50 cal as we go around. And and that's like hour, one and a half of what became a five-hour mission, trading, uh, strafing rounds. So we had a hot mic on the primary, one of the cast frequencies. So we were on a single... Uh, open frequency trading a ten Apache and PayPal gun runs with our non jtAC pJs calling in the the fires off of their position
1: for the rest of the day, basically. I know this happened uh, uh, this is way back in your story, but one, I want to highlight the fact of like the nVGs like the worst time to be flying, I think, is the transition between daytime and nighttime and nighttime and daytime because you can't see with your naked eye and your MVGs are basically worthless at that point. So overcoming that aspect and that terrain, cause you got shadows and all sorts of stuff. So I know you guys are working really hard to, to get through that. So hats off there, but I do want to fast forward back to the PJs. So those guys are calling in airstrikes and basically, are you guys just doing self-deconfliction between you, the A-10, the Apaches? How, how did all that go down? Right. So. I think we're at
0: 75 feet at one point here. And the A-10s are like, hey, you know, sector west or whatever, we're coming in. And so an A-10 flies under us. We're at 75 feet. And the A-10 flies under us at 50 feet with their gun going. And then just G pulls straight through the horizon. You see that iron cross as they pull through the mountain ridge. And I was just like, this is insane. Um, But it was safe. We were all professional aviators along with the Apaches. It was... Uh, extreme in that we we didn't have a shape tack. It was basically call for fire five line off of the PJs. And it was off the PJs' best guess of where they were taking fire in their position. And they had to stay hidden, basically. And they heard voices around them the whole day and took fire above their heads within meters for the entire day, but never compromised their position and really had to make tough choices between kind of doing a last stand they only probably had three m4 magazines each and uh decided to use the air assets we had and so yeah we we deconflicted by saying hey offset to this side go to this altitude and then we had a hog team of four and then we had a sandy team of four and we also had strike eagles overhead and we had mc12 probably a mq one at the time yeah Like, we had a B-1 at one point. So at this point in time, this was the largest unplanned mission in Afghanistan history for the U.S. We had contract pilots who were former, you know, like, 05s or 06s cruising around. And they would switch to our frequency, and they're like, hey, it's Bill from this squadron. Good luck, guys. And then they'd switch frequency and fly off. And so we'd get, like, fist pumps from the uh, retired
1: cadre, as they cruise through Afghanistan. What a different world. I mean, it's just kind of surreal. Yeah, it was pretty weird. That's a five-hour mission. I'm assuming that's because that's how long it's taken the PJs to get the deceased pilot out of the Kiowa. No. So it's actually us
0: trying to rescue our PJs. And we... So Flight Lead had taken... Um, heavy battle damage as we were getting us our second flight engineer their transmission uh, fluid was was draining out of the aircraft that lubricates the mass, the spinning rotor basically and it's kind of all bets are off once that's dry you have zero minutes or you have 30 minutes until you're an 18 pound car in the air that just <laughs> falls out of the sky right and so they bravely stay in the zone cover us on that one pass and then they go shut it down and it's bone dry by the time they shut down and they get the uh the pilot that survived the crash onto an army blackhawk to take that that person to bagram and then we're doing a battle damage check and i see scuba's helmet at that point and i'm like dude did you see this do you see your helmet and he's like yeah don't tell the rest of the dudes i don't want to freak them out i'm like bro we're pretty freaked out um but super brave guy. And we we had a team discussion, uh, our flight engineers. We got all the PJ team from Bagram now to this French fob. And this this French dude runs up as we're having the conversation with a bunch of pastries. And he's like, they are French. They are good. Enjoy them. And we're like, thanks, bro. Um, <laughs> it, we have this conversation. And we're all like, yeah, let's get an Apache as a wingman and let's go back in. And so we start back up, and now our flight lead is waiting to get uh, a ride back to Bagram to get the spare aircraft to come back out. And the maintenance crews, who are amazing, are getting that beast ready to fly with good ammo loaded and all that. So at any rate, there's an Army 06 now and an Apache overhead, and, and we ask him, hey, can you be our wingman for this these passes? And he says, yeah, absolutely. So we go in, and we get shot out of the zone again. Uh, we're five miles from the PJs and we take fires through the floor and Phil and I look at each other and just shake our heads like this whole village is trying to kill us yeah. and the gunner is like, hey guys, that just went through my knee pad and into the ceiling, but I'm okay. We're like, all right, bro. Um, and then, uh, like, we just start circling, waiting for the Apaches and the A-10s to uh, make it more permissive and... Everybody's exhausted at this point. And I kind of like wake up out of this daze and start jinking the aircraft, expecting some sort of missile to come at us, get to this ridge line, and we're like, hey, we got a recage, we're getting tired. Um and at this point we get gas again and an army quick reaction force super heroically gets infilled across the river as a blocking force to basically sacrifice themselves to get our PJs out of there. And so they infill this multiple soldier team who had had zero crew rest from their last quick reaction force mission. Those Blackhawks take RPG shots and two of those troopers are wounded within the first like five minutes of them being on the river side of this village. And one of the dudes is killed, the other is shot through the chest. And so now we keep talking to our guardian. So our two PJs keep saying, hey man, we're going to get you out of here. You dudes are okay right now. You're not wounded. We got to get these army guys out, and then we'll come get you. And we have the rest of the PJ team in the back of our aircraft now. And for some reason, again, I see this VS-17 panel take the controls. So this bright orange fabric, basically. We, we come into a hover in this head-high elephant grass next to all these adobe or collat windows that are just dark now because it's daytime and there's no lights on inside. And there had been uh, intercepted chatter that like, and we saw all the civilians leave the village during part of this battle. Yeah, perfect. So like, a perfect like, Right. And all the civilians had just like marched out of the village with their kids, which was, I mean, good that that the villagers had left and these dudes were still trying to kill us. We're just trying to get our PJs out at this point. Um, So I pedal turn. I see the army dudes running through the elephant grass towards us with the wounded trooper. And then off the nose, I see at least five muzzle flashes, basically point blank straight into our face. And I, I look at Sil and I'm like, Hey, should we just like get this dude on board? It's another 20 seconds. No, go around. And I was a good call. Effective fire straight into her face. So we pedal turn, put the left gun on it. And I hit it with our our cocktail of 50 cal bullets, one of which is an exploding round. And we're sawing, you know, walls in half in this tree as we go around. And I droop the rotor. I pull a ton of power and you get a low rotor horn in your helmet. Pilot says, hey, low rotor. And I don't respond with a little collective out because I'm still just max performing. So he checks the rotor by just pushing down on the collective. And I have this flood of relief that, hey, he's flying. And then I I look over and he's not flying. He was just being a bro and checking the rotor. So I grab the controls again, the SEL's wires off the nose, and there are huge gondola cables like 10 feet off the probe. And I pull in more power, droop the rotor again, dump it over the wires with the cyclic. So I rob the rotor of all energy and we're now in the elephant grass flying out with our gun engaging. And... Somehow survived that just outrageous engagement, getting into the overhead in flight lead, super brave, great combat leadership. It's just like, hey, you guys have had a rough day. And he's on his second aircraft by this point. He's like, we're going to go into the zone now for our for the pickup. And I look at Phil and I had never been so grateful to anybody in my life. And I'm like, wow, we might survive today. And then he calls offset, which is our most dangerous, like, protecting position is track two, where we hover off
1: him. And I was like, oh, no. I I, I guess you go into, like, a low hover, like, just like. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, no, it's even worse.
0: Um, We're going to be this flag. Yeah, right. But it was this uh, uh, exposing tactic, but it was really brilliant because we just, he had this uh, play call deep in his mind as an audible and he just effectively used it. And so we roll in and we have an Apache offset hover on us. So it's lead, then like we're in a hundred foot hover off him with our gun on the threat, Apache above us with their 30 millimeter on the threat. And the second Apache does this perfect purge, like a uh, chandelle. right as lead gets zero energy and the whole village engages us. And so that Apache perching does a return to target and fires a bunch of rockets between our R2 aircraft and a Huffer. And we're all just engaging. All the PJs are shooting their M4s. And it's just wild. One of the PJs is a good friend at this point in time, told me everybody was just Winchestering all their ammo. And he's like, wait a second, we don't have the Stokes litter prep for the Survivor. And so he did, like, his primary job, which is to, like, make sure we can get the survivor. Just everybody else is just unloading on the threat. And just tremendous bravery from, you know, like, 18 of us from our rescue team. And then, you know, the Patties and the Sandys and the Hogs and all those dudes, too. And our PJs for just being brave and selfless and not, uh, you know... Just being like, yeah, get those dudes first and then come get us. We're going to stay concealed and keep calling gun runs. And so then they fire a hellfire off an Apache and that quiets it down enough. You could feel that in your chest. We offset three miles for that shot. We offset and then we're able to lead, was able to get out the army dude on that pass. And then... Phil my pilot had a really brilliant idea and just took a tailwind because we were really low on gas so we had hover power so we could accept that and it hovered with the ro- the hoist into the terrain so the angle was smaller and we could be lower and got our two PJ's out and as we spun in the, the hoist wasn't working and we were just like oh my god like you got to be kidding me uh one of the converters had been shot out and so we had to go to backup mode on the hoist and that a normal hoist is pretty speedy Backup mode hoist is painfully slow. Is especially it? when you're hovering, yeah, in this super hot combat environment for the past five hours. Yeah. It and defo- it defaults to the slow speed. Right. It defaults to the slow speed. And our PJs put on the deceased pilot to recover him first and send him up solo and then come up together. And uh and we blazed out of there back to Bogram, um, landed did the correct procedures to um, reconstitute the deceased pilot and then got to the squadron. And when we landed, you know, we had fighter dudes from the that side of the base, the attack weapons guys who had been flying with us. And we all just all the maintainers, all our spare air crew, we just pretty surreal moment, pretty amazing moment to see all your buddies just like, giving you a pat on the back happy you're alive you're happy you're alive glad you were able to get some dudes out of there um and then you look at your aircraft and two are totally unflyable and you're still on CSAR alert and so we had the spare aircraft that has somehow not been damaged as our basically our aircraft that we were going to take apaches or fighters
1: as our escort if we had a CSAR. and then we came off Kazovac alert for like two weeks or something. Repair the helicopters or did they have to bring they to bring new ones in? No. Uh our maintenance dudes are champs and our gun troops had done a great job
0: with our Gal 18s, our 50 cals. We shot six weapons for, you know, five hours basically, and none of them had any malfunctions.
1: That's incredible that's incredible.
0: I agree. Yeah, totally amazing. And the sheet pedal folks got to work and just started patching these beasts up they replaced the transmission fluid and the generator that it had drained it out of in the the other one. And one of our, the the other shift flew that back from the French fob to butter. And they told them, yeah, just don't touch the tail rotor. pedals <laughs> Would you slide this back? It's so you, you can kind of fly a black Hawk that way. And so he very gingerly got it back to base and our maintenance. just did a Herculean feat and got these things ready to go to combat again.
1: There is something about being down low and dirty in the mess that obviously makes it really real because it is real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's intense.
1: <laughs> well, Shiner, again, I really appreciate you sharing these stories with me. I always like to ask my guests at the end, like if you found 15-year-old Shiner on the streets and <laughs> traveled back in time, is there anything you would tell him to do differently or, or change anything?
0: Man, I would just tell him to like ski as much as humanly possible. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I I think uh, one thing I have learned just through like we I got really good development from our flight leads and instructor pilots from all the way from UPT through Pave Hawk training, and like just seeing their maturity. And I think I'd tell Young Shriner, like, hey, man, like the most emotionally satisfying response to like initially frustrating things is almost always the wrong answer. So like take that deep breath, give them the benefit of the doubt and just like keep calm and carry on. Right. And that's the best thing I've learned from rescue. I think that, you know, trying to get after it as a youth, I could have benefited from
1: (laughs) sage advice. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, Shiner, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. People are really going to enjoy these stories. I appreciate your time and everything you do. Thanks man. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out until next time. Don't bring a week.